بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على المبعوث رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد قال الله تبارك وتعالى في القرآن المجيد والفرقان الحميد سنريهم آياتنا في الآفاق وفي أنفسهم حتى يتبين لهم أنه الحق وقال ابن عطاء الله عجب ربك من قوم يساقون إلى الجنة بالسلاسل My dear respected brothers the life of a believer is an interesting life the life of a believer, what characterizes the life of a believer is belief in the unseen. That's what sets us apart from every, from every other type of belief and every other type of life in this world. If we didn't have belief in the afterlife, in the unseen, then we would be doing things very differently. You wouldn't be sitting here today. You wouldn't be sitting here today. Belief in the afterlife, belief in the unseen, belief in a parallel universe and force that's governing everything, that lies at the back of everything. That is what our belief is in the unseen. So for example, a very simple example where you can see this kind of juxtaposition between two types of lives. One is a life based on observation, on empiricism, on what you see in front of you, a very scientific life. I see the, pr the product of something, the consequence of something. So that's what I believe in. So for example, I see that I have a thousand pounds in the bank and then suddenly that increased to a thousand and twenty pounds or thousand and thirty or forty pounds or fifty pounds during the year. And I'm getting happy about that because that's interest money. I got it for nothing. I got it just by allowing the bank to use my money. So. I got that money, so now suddenly I am more excited because I am observing an increase. I've actually seen a tangible increase now. On the other hand, you've got a person who's got a thousand pounds in the bank and knows that when it comes to a particular time of the year, he has to give 25 pounds out of that, 2.5% out of that in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because he is obliged to do so. So he gives it with full confidence in the heart, with full yaqeen and iman in the heart, that I give this 25 pounds out of my 1,000 pounds and I'm going to get a lot back. I'm going to be able to do more with that money. So from an observation standpoint, from an observation standpoint, you're decreasing your money. But you are more satisfied and content and you have yaqeen. By that 25 pounds, poor people are helped and assisted. So it deals with a number of aspects within the heart. So on the one hand, you've got a life that's based on seeing increase and selfishness of that nature. And on the other hand, you've got where you're giving away something and yet you're still being happy because you know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, مَثَلُ الَّذِينَ يُنْفِكُونَ أَمْوَالَهُمْ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ كَمَثَلِ حَبَّةٍ أَنْبَتَتْ سَبْعَ سَنَابِلْ فِي كُلِّ سُنْبُلَةٍ مِئَةُ حَبَّةٍ any seed, anything that you spend in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's like one seed that then produces eight ears of corn in which each one of them is a, a huge number of seeds. And then Allah says, and Allah can even give you 
multiply even beyond that. So that's our yaqeen. So that's the difference in these two types of lives. One is based on observation. The other one is based on iman, yaqeen and the ghayb and the unseen. And that is what sets us apart from anybody else. This whole life is about that. This whole life is geared, geared towards the hereafter. For example, you've got a phone. You've just bought a new phone. Now you start spending money on your phone. You've spent money to buy a phone. Now we will actually start spending money on, on the phone. How do you spend money on the phone? You buy cases for it. Right? You have sometimes more than one case for it. Because you like variety. You get bored of one case. A flip case, you get a bit bored of that. You buy another one, a pouch case. Then you think it's too much of a hassle to keep opening it up. So then you, you get a case that just covers everything. Then you need screen, screen protectors. So you have to keep looking after it. And then there's others where you can add additional things to it. And you start spending on it. The only reason you're spending on this is because it works. It's new. It provides a function. It's still in vogue. It's still the trend. It still attracts people's eyesight. Now as soon as the next model comes up, you suddenly don't feel like the same attraction towards your phone anymore. Because you suddenly feel like your gaze is somewhere else. The whole dunya is like this, just become more complex. Before what you could do when the genes first came out, when genes were first introduced for the Californian workers in the gold rush, it was a very simple affair. This was a special cloth, a very durable, hard-wearing cloth that was produced so that they could, it could last for a long time. You don't have to wash them. It doesn't really attract too much smell, etc. There's certain qualities in genes. There was only one type of jeans you could buy, just different sizes. You went into a store, you knew exactly what you wanted. You picked your size, you came out. Your heart was not left in the store with any other model because you got what you wanted. You fully realized your goal, your interest, your desire was fulfilled with a 100% gene that you wanted. Now you went, you went away with it. Suddenly, they started producing other types of jeans where you had different shapes and styles. Some which are baggy, some which are tight, some which are different colors. You have those which they literally, the way they, the way they fade them out is they get people to stand there with these uh, guns, that uh, small pebbles, and they actually fire at this. And it's actually very bad for them. Uh, a lot of these people in third world countries, they actually develop bad lung disease and so on because of the, the, uh, the circulation of the dust in those, in those chambers where they hit literally hit the genes so that we can have a nice worn out kind of look right so you've got different colors now you've got different shapes and styles now you go into a store and you will not be satisfied with what you've got because first you'd have to make a choice of which one you want out of the 30 different styles and companies you've only got 200 pounds so you either buy one pair of diesel jeans right or you buy three pairs of Levi's jeans, right? Or, you know, you do, but when you've bought those, your heart is still on a few others that you would have liked to buy as well, but you can't because you have to make a choice. So now suddenly things become more difficult in this world. What is satisfaction? What is satisfaction is now very complicated because you can't get full satisfaction anymore. You want to buy a car, it's the same thing. You only have potential to buy a certain type of car that comes, becomes available. Now, if you want to compete in the world, that's very difficult to do. Because the world is a place where if you start looking at people who have more than you, 
then suddenly there's no end to that life. And that's, if you hear about what some of these billionaires do, not millionaires, if you hear about what some of these billionaires do, there's no way you can even reach that status unless you're a billionaire and you also want to be crazy like that. For example, Bill Gates has a house in, has a big estate in Redmond, Washington. Now, this is a massive estate on a number of acres with lots of buildings and so on and so forth. I don't think anybody's going to disturb him, right, in his house. Because he's got so many probably surrounding buildings around his house. So much land, nobody's going to disturb him. But what he does is, he doesn't want any neighbours. So he literally buys up all the houses and estates around that area. So he doesn't have to have any neighbours. There's another guy who does the same in, in, uh, in Florida, in Miami, at the beach. There's a particular beach, he buys one house and then he suddenly says, I don't want any more neighbours. So he starts going around and saying, name me your price. 150 million, 200 million and he buys up everything around them. Now that is not sufficient now. Now the next, the next big thing, the most expensive commodity in the world is not a building, but it's a yacht that they have produced in a particular ship a particular yacht shipyards that they make them in and they go into 300 millions and 400 millions and 500 millions and then they start outdoing each other as to who's got the longest yacht in the world with everything in there and they take about 10 people on there to have a big party and that place can probably you know cater for hundreds of poor people but that's that's what it is if that's the way you want to go there's no end to it and the nature of the world is like that but we have something that is so valuable which is to go beyond this world. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows us in everything. From the example of that phone. We put a lot of effort into our phones. For example, as soon as we see that it's become worn out. Or it's become old. Or it's stopped working. We will no longer spend any money on there. You think there's no point spending any money on there. Likewise, when it comes to ourself. When it comes to ourself, it's the same kind of situation. Allah just tells us through everything that we lose that deteriorates everything that destructs in this world that becomes old or becomes or becomes lost Allah is just telling us that that is what's going to happen to you you're made of the same thing you're a creation just as this is the creation you're also a creation the same thing will happen to you and that's why we're told to remember inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun that we are also for Allah and to him we will also return that's what it's supposed to do all of these things in this dunya in this world so now the question is that how much further do we think about this and not nurture our iman i read something which is so amazing that it's uh, the, the ulama right that the people who have the least iman will be the less worried least worried about losing their faith they won't think it's something they're going to lose very easy so they won't be concerned about it they'll be so so careless in doing sins they won't really be worried about it Whereas you have a person like Sufyan al-Thawri, who is one of the great hadith scholars, who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose to narrate a few hadith. Somehow his mother, his father must have put him into that path. And he studied and he sat with the right teachers. And he was there at the right time in history to become a, a transmitter of, narration, of, of hadith. Now today, if you transmit hadith, it's a very different game to what it used to be in those days. Now the whole world has heard of him. Sufyan al-Thawri rahimahullah One day he's sitting crying He's weeping and somebody says What makes you cry? And he says He picks up a small seed of wheat 
And he says, I have not disobeyed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even to this amount. He says, what are you crying for then? He says, because you know this gift of iman that I have, I'm not 100% secure that it will stay until I die. So that's what I'm worried about. So their thought is on a different level. The more you invest in your iman, the more we will see value in it. The more you'll see how important it is. That's when you, it's like, do we start investing first or do we start valuing it first? You know, what comes first? Somehow it has to come together. It's a matter of tawfiq from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But that's the believer. That's what sets us apart. And alhamdulillah, we're already in the masjid. This is actually what sets us apart from anybody else. <clears throat> in, the, in the homes, that's what we should be speaking more about. Not of observation, but of the ghayb. We need to develop the faith of our family members, our children in the unseen. In the unseen, that's what we need to do. I had a friend who was an imam in America. He's actually uh, not from America. Just like I was in America from England, he was from another country. And once the, it was either the FBI or the Homeland Security or the Immigration Service, they were speaking to him and he's part of the Tabliq Jamaat. So they're speaking to him and they're saying, you know, the Jamaats come, etc. Where do they get their funding from? And, you know, where's the hierarchy? Where are their bank accounts? You know, so on and so forth. So he's a really cool guy. He says, you know, their accounts and their system is above the heavens and it's below the grounds. So the guy said, like, what are you talking about? He said, yes, they, their system you won't be able to see. It works on another dimension. That's what he told them. For example, in this world when somebody has a temperature, you get a temperature, somebody has a temperature, they're very hot. You go to somebody, initially they'll tell you that it's either because of an infection, it's either because of maybe a virus it could be because of a it could be something as bad as malaria or something else that's even more critical so at this point it's a realm of possibilities that it could be this it could be that or it could be this when they go and they do a blood test they do different types of tests eventually they figure out that okay this was because of malaria or this was because of the particular virus or an infection and then it moves from possibility into a more definite cause. As a Muslim, we need to have a definite understanding of who is behind everything. Not as a possibility by looking at all of these things that are the apparent causes of things. Our gaze should be on the definite cause of everything in this world, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what you call yaqeen. Iman is supposed to be yaqeen. Iman is just not the name of saying, I am a Muslim. But it's more of a practice. It's more of a state. It's more of a mindset and a frame of understanding and approach to something where we believe in the unseen as a matter of definite conviction that everything is happening because of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. For example, if the believer, he'll see his heart. His, in his heart will be Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he'll feel completely secure. We're talking about a true believer. He'll feel completely secure. 
If he has happiness, he will know where it's coming from, so he'll thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If he has calamity, he'll know where this is coming from, what the source of this is. He'll be patient and he'll have his gaze on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whatever happens, his whole focus, he'll keep going back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I've got this young niece who doesn't go to anybody. She is, mashallah, she has so much ghayrah that she, you look at her and she'll have a problem. Right? You look at the only person she goes to is her mother and father. And if you look at her, she will start crying. Right? That's how much ghayrat and jealousy she has. Anything happens, children, they run to their parents. Something happens, they'll go run with it to, to their parents. You give them something, they'll run with their sweets to their parents. Right? This is at the infant age. If they're angry, if they're hungry, they will run to their parents. If they feel frightened, they will run to their parents. At every stage, they run to their parents. Sometimes you look at these children, they're there for a lesson for us. That I wish I could be like that with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That regardless of my state, whatever my state is, I feel happy I run to Allah. I am so jealous. I'm like that child. I'm so jealous that I don't look at anybody else. I don't tolerate anybody else. I don't want anybody else to think that I'm getting anything from them. I want it just purely from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I want only He, only Allah to give me things. These are the signs that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us in the world. It's only if we think that we will make something out of them. This is the way of the people of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They find a lesson in everything. They find a lesson in everything. However, the one thing that one has to understand is that a person who is, whose life is based on observation, where he has to see good coming to him, then he'll believe. Then the problem with that kind of life is that when death hits and reality opens up, then it will be a state of shock because there's no preparation. What one has to remember is that when death starts coming out, when, death, when, when a person's life starts to leave and death approaches, at that moment, a, all artificial, all uh, veils, everything r becomes removed from the world. So what happens is you actually start realizing the truths about things. Now what happens at that stage is once you start realizing the truth, it's like you've come out of an exam, you're really excited that you wrote all the right answers, but when you've actually come out, you've suddenly realized it clicked then only. Unfortunately, it didn't click inside. It clicked outside when you heard somebody saying, oh, that question, this is the answer to it. And you just suddenly remembered, yes, that was the answer. And I was totally deceived when I was inside. I was totally confused. In fact, I was deluded inside. How are you going to feel? One is that you know you've done wrong. You know you haven't done too well. And you come out thinking, what's, you know, I, you've already prepared yourself. The other one is you think you did well. You came out and you discovered differently. Imagine that state of loss. At least in a world, you can go and take an exam again. It's a bit of a hassle. You might have to pay some more money. You might have to waste another year. You can take those tests. But when reality hits you, hits us in the, at the end of life, and then suddenly we start comparing that to what we really used to believe, and now the reality is there, what do you do at that time? If it's a believer, when they die, it will be a source of reinforcement. It will be a sort of satisfaction. It will be a sort of ha happiness. That's why the believer will die by saying, Fustu bi Rabbil Ka'bah. I am a winner by the Lord of the Ka'bah. I am a winner by the Lord of the Ka'bah. That's the feeling that they will have. And this is the feeling that we want. Now, what happens is, 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as soon as you start building your faith, there will be difficulties that may come up. In fact, sometimes it's actually seen as a sign of you building your iman and working hard. So for example, very interestingly, there's a number of manifestations of this. One is that you see people when it's their exam time, you'll see them doing tahajjud prayer, crying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Once the exams are finished, some people don't even worry about the fard prayers of the day. It's done now, I don't need it anymore. So this is basically a selfish approach to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will answer more readily if we remember him at other times. Our voice would be a known voice in the court of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when we're in need and we call out, that our voice will be known. Our applications have been there already. We're a known person there. We have contacts there in a sense. That's what makes the difference. But otherwise, that's the state. So, Ibn Ata'illah, he says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, sometimes what he does is when he sees a believer who has faith in him and has gone a bit wrong, he will actually give him some difficulties. Those difficulties are to wake him up and make him do dua again. This is for a believer. To make him do dua, to make him repent and come back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ibn Ata'illah says something very interesting. He says, Your Lord, your Lord is amazed. Your Lord is amazed at a people who are drawn into paradise in chains. Basically, Allah wants you in Jannah. So He gives you these difficulties. He makes you suffer these difficulties and be patient. And by that, your status is elevated. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows you to go into Jannah. Essentially, you're going into Jannah because Allah chained you to Jannah. That's a merciful Lord. That's a merciful Lord. Difficulties have to be born in our life. That's what we have to understand. The problem with us is that when we get difficulty, we don't feel like going anywhere. We don't feel like going to the masjid. We don't feel like going and helping anybody out because we feel that the whole world has come down upon us. That's exactly what shaitan wants from us. The secret of removing depression is to run to Allah as much as possible during depression. Depression gen generally comes from the shaitan. Shaitan wants us to be worried. He wants us to be frightened. He wants us to be deluded. He wants us to be always scared so that we don't go to Allah. And if that's exactly what we're doing when something happens to us, shaitan will only make us more worried. But if he sees that this man, this woman, when they get worried, when they have a problem, they, when, they, when they're anxious, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un, they're running to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, shaitan is going to say, I better not mess with this guy. I better not frighten this person because this person is, I'm just going to drive him to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the best remedy for these anxiety problems is to run to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It may take a while, but eventually shaitan gets the idea. I mean, if, what happens is initially it's from the shaitan. It could be from the shaitan initially. But then it becomes a behavioral pat pattern. It becomes something that we take on and it becomes then a habit. So sometimes it does take a bit longer for us to rid ourselves of it. You have to, you have to realize it's not going to... If we had a problem for a while, or if somebody has had a problem for a while, it's not going to become better overnight, generally speaking. Because it becomes a personality issue afterwards. It's no longer just a problem with the shaitan, right? But the one thing that we have to realize is that the more we turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in these times, then shaitan will bother us less because you'll think it's, it's not worth it. It's actually backfiring what he's trying to do. So as strong as a person is, there will be difficulties. A woman who becomes pregnant, a beautiful formation is taking place. 
a human being, another creature is another creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is being uh, is being produced in the womb of the mother. Such a beautiful process. However, what happens after the first month? They suddenly start having morning sickness. They're vomiting. There's difficulty. There's pains. There's such a beautiful process going on, but there's pains. But at the end of it, subhanallah, there's this beautiful product from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So pains, difficulties have to be tolerated for a product of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's the nature of the world. That's the nature of this world. So, what we have to remember is as strong as a person's iman is. Now what I mean by iman is the actual faith, the connection with Allah, the belief in Allah. As much as a person's faith is, that is how much actions you'll be able to do. If the faith isn't strong, we won't be worried too much about avoiding the gaze, avoiding the haram, uh, praying, etc., etc. Dealing with difficulties, the more the iman is strong, then that is how much actions that will be produced for it. It's basically, the, 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 the similitude here is that the stronger the foundation, the taller the building and structure you'll be able to create on it. Otherwise, it will fall and shake. Somebody tries, it will fall and shake because the iman is not strong enough. So now after having spoken about the importance of iman for such a long time, just to quickly give us an idea of how to build our faith. And there are primarily four ways of building our faith. So we'll just go through them quickly and then I'll take inshallah your questions. First and foremost, how does one learn iman? First, believe it or not, is to actually think about the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Is to actually ponder the creation of Allah. I gave you examples already. Through the way infants are so connected to their, to their mother who they see as their point of sustenance. They don't have a level of independence. This level of independence, if it gets to our head, then we will shun Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's the way to understand this. When things around us, when they constantly perish, that's a way to understand we will perish. So there's ways to understand. And Allah says in the Quran, سَنُرِيهِمْ آيَاتِنَا فِي الْآفَاقِ that we will show them, we will show them and manifest for them our signs in the universe, in the cosmic system. And within themselves until it will become absolutely clear that He is the true one. That Allah is the one behind everything. That will become clear. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala constantly, constantly says in the Quran, Alam tara. كَيْفَ فَعَلَ رَبُّكَ بِأَصْحَابِ الْفِيلِ أَلَمْ تَرَى أَلَمْ تَرَى أَلَمْ تَرَوْا أُنْذُرْ أُنْذُرُوا See, look. All of these words are in the Quran. It actually tells us to look. Allah tells us to look. The problem is, there's a poem, a poet who says, وَفِي كُلِّ شَيْءٍ لَهُ آيَةٍ وَفِي كُلِّ شَيْءٍ لَهُ آيَةٍ تَدُلُّ عَلَىٰ أَنَّهُ وَاحِدَةٍ In everything, there is a sign that shows that he is one. But the problem is that the reason why we cannot see it is based on uh, is is answered in another poem. It says that إذ المرء كانت له فكرة ففي كل شيء له عبرة ففي كل شيء له عبرة. If a man, if a person has thought, if a person has the time to think, essentially that's what he's saying. If a person has the time to think, then in everything he will find a lesson. Our Twitter accounts are so different from what it used to be before, right? If you look at Ibn al-Jawzi, one of the best examples that I can think of at this point in time of somebody who used to think and think and think. And the less you interact with people, the more you'll be able to think because you'll have more time. 
When I say less that you interact with people, I don't mean just physically, which everybody's doing today. Right? Everybody's in the virtual world talking to hundreds of people, but in real life talking to nobody. That's not the same thing. We're saying totally thinking for their own self. It says about Abu Faraj ibn al-Jawzi, a great scholar from Baghdad, he used to stay in his house and only go out for Jumu'ah prayers and for lectures. Otherwise, he used to be at home working and writing and thinking. If somebody used to come to visit him, he used to get so, uh, he used to multitask. Unless they were obviously somebody who could speak at his level and if it was somebody just there um, wasting his time essentially, he'd be polite enough. But he said, I'll multitask by preparing my pens or doing something or whatever. He writes all of these things down. He sees, for example, he sees a laborers carrying a huge piece of timber or something. And as they're carrying it, they're singing. So then he thinks, subhanAllah. He says, the reason they're singing is to take their mind off the hard labor of their work. It's to divest their brain, one aspect of their brain, from the burden of what they're doing. So he says that this is one way that you can use these things. So he is trying to find the ibrah in everything. So essentially he has a book which is called Sayyidul Khatir, which would be very interesting for those who understand Arabic and the ulama to read because he's got so many thought-provoking anecdotes that he provides of just observations that he had. Observations that he had, highly philosophical. Essentially I consider his book a precursor to Twitter. Right, but every tweet of his in there is mashallah of high value. Today, subhanAllah, you have Twitter accounts with, you see they have about 250 followers and they have about 30,000 tweets. And I just wonder how many tweets to each follower. 250 followers, 30,000 tweets, 40,000 tweets. And if you check, it's tweeting every few minutes. So is that what you're living for, to tweet? Is that what you're living for? It's, I mean, I don't say that if you have more, <coughs> more people, then you should tweet more. I'm not trying to say that. But subhanAllah, I, I haven't been able to tweet for days. I just don't know what to say. Right? If you look at my Twitter account, I think I put out an article that I found interesting, I think this morning or yesterday. But other than that, I really have to think because at the end of the day, you're going to be questioned for everything you say. You're going to be questioned for everything you say. So it gets really complicated. So I just wonder how people can be taking pictures of some high heels in a store that they like or some food that they ate. I mean, what next? What are they going to start showing tomorrow? Subhanallah. Right? So it's just one of those things that we're so... We don't have time to think today. I think one of the biggest problems we have today is that we don't have time to think. We only think about what we're led to think. Hot issues in the media, because we're all wired in to groups that will immediately, like wildfire, spread news that is even incorrect. So many ulama have been killed before their time. Said so-and-so has passed away in Pakistan. And suddenly, no, no, he hasn't, he's still alive. That was a wrong, you know, that was a wrong message that went through. And subhanAllah, we just keep forwarding things. Recently we found out that Juma Mubarak, you don't get those as much anymore. Or maybe it's just because, you know, as soon as I start getting, uh, this is what you should do, as soon as you start getting text messages from somebody or message that you don't want, can you please unsubscribe me? I get too much already. Just be honest about it. 
And if you get forwards of some strange hadith or something like that, which just sounds really wacky, then just tell them, can you give me the evidence for this? Oh, somebody forwarded it to me. So I'm just forwarding it on. The Prophet ﷺ said, كفى بالمرء أن يحدث بكل ما سمع That it is sufficient for a person to be considered a liar, that he just conveys everything he hears. Before it used to be limited. If somebody told me one thing, I meet you, I tell you that thing. And then I tell him, I can tell about 10 people maybe. Not everybody's a speaker that gets to speak to 100 people, you know. But now, every Tom, Dick and Harry can speak to hundreds of people and then that proliferates suddenly. And you get the sin of that if it's wrong. So be careful of these things. There has a purpose in this world that we need to think about. There's a purpose in this world. We're losing that purpose. We are made to be busy, busy and distracted at all times. Think about it. When's the last time, unless something bad happened to you, when's the last time you actually thought, you know, in a luxurious way to just think, what am I doing? What, what should I be doing? When's the last time you did that? Unless it was a time when you were forced to think because there was a calamity that came up. We should be thinking every day. We should be thinking every day. That's what it is. That's why it says, If only, <clears throat> if a person has thought and they use their thought process independently, then you will see that they will find a lesson in everything. And that's how the awliya Allah, that's how they think. That's why you see them saying things that seem to be just so spot on. And yet they're so, they're, they're so, simple, they're so simple points. Ibrahim alayhi salam, one of the greatest signs, one of the greatest examples of somebody benefiting from the system is Ibrahim alayhi salam. He looks around, he's looking for the creator of all of this. There must be a force behind all of this. Then he sees the moon, he sees the stars, they, 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 they disappear. He says, that can't be. And then he says, He sees the sun, this dominates everything. This is the biggest, this is the greatest, this must be my Lord. But when that came down, when that went down as well, then he turned, he said, there must be something beyond that. And you have, you have that, you, you, have, you have all of this thought process through that. <clears throat> Number two, so the first point is to look around you and just interact with the environment, not with, not with the other things around you. Number two, ponder the stories of the prophets. They're mentioned in the Quran for a reason. They're mentioned in the Quran because they provide, they provide if you look at all the stories of the, uh, in the Quran about the prophets, the whole crux of those stories, the whole purpose behind those stories is to provide iman boost is to show you what Iman is in the face of major challenges. <clears throat> that's exactly, that's, that's what it's all about. So, the Prophet ﷺ used to be constantly um, bothered by the, what the Kuffar used to say of the time. They used to say weird things to him, they used to trouble him, they used to bother him a lot. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he provided the stories and anecdotes, uh, narratives of the Prophets of the past to give him a lot of strength. That's why Allah says in this verse, We have narrated these stories of the narratives of the messengers of the past, by which we strengthen your heart. So if it strengthens the heart of a Prophet in the face of all that challenge, then will it not strengthen us when our challenges are not as much as that of the Prophet? He had a major challenge to his faith. Our challenges are much more subtle than that. Yusuf alayhi salam's story has huge amount of lessons in there. For example, 
he is thrown into a well by his brothers, by his own people, by those who are supposed to love him, look after him, that took the that took the responsibility to look after him, he's thrown into the well. Then after that, he's sold as a slave by those who find him. Then after that, he goes through that whole system in, uh, in there where he has no position, he is, he's got no contacts, he has no support, he has no parents, he has nobody, he's got no family, the place he's in is estranged for him, and he's got nobody whatsoever. What do you expect from somebody like that? Now, the lesson to be drawn here is that if you have certain qualities, then regardless of where you are and what kind of situation you're in, then Yusuf Islam's story passed that what did he have that, that helped him in this situation? He had a huge amount of nobility. He was a very noble individual. Despite being so alone and despite being a slave and sold, he had nobility, he had uprightness, he had honesty, and he had chastity. He had morality. He was a pure individual. With all of those qualities, he had obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's why eventually he becomes a minister. He's not made a minister because he's discovered to be a prophet. No, he's made a minister because he, of his honesty, because of what he does. And, and the same people, that, uh, the, the same women, they expressed his, uh, they exo exonerated him at, at the end. Totally amazing change. However, this is what's important. Then he sat as the minister for agriculture, the minister for food distribution, and, and so on and so forth. He sat there. Imagine the position he's in. Suddenly, his brothers come along from a place at a distance that in a needy state. They come in, they take something first, they come again. Now, this time when they come, they say, Ya ayyuhal aziz, masana wa ahlana durru. We have been afflicted. We don't have enough money. We don't have, we're not very prosperous. We've come with a very small amount of payment. We don't have enough even to pay you. We've come with a very small amount of payment. Subhanallah. Give us the full measure. We've come with a small amount, but you give us still the full measure. Give sadaqah to us. His brothers who did what they did to him are now asking their brother without realizing. I mean, there must be some resemblance. His brother Binyamin was from the same mother. So there must be some resemblance. But they could never think in any, in, in any wildest of their dreams that he would still be alive. So all of that is veiled and he's telling, they're telling him to give sadaqah. So, they're giving him the virtues that Allah rewards those who give sadaqah. And that's when he said, <clears throat> that's when Yusuf said to him, uh, do you remember what you did with Yusuf? And they said, uh, are you Yusuf? The only way they could figure that out is that they only he knows the story. Nobody else knows that story. Not even their father knew the story according to them. You know? So, are you Yusuf? Things started falling in place. However, out of all of this, the most important thing is what he says after that. Now remember, the stories in the Quran are not for the sake of stories. They, they are for the moral at the end of the story. They're for strengthening the faith. So by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself, he uses the words of Yusuf alayhi he, he says, وَمَن يَتَّقِ اللَّهَ وَيَصْبِرْ إِنَّهُ مَن يَتَّقِ وَيَصْبِرْ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُضِيعُ أَجْرَ الْمُحْسِنِينَ That the one, 
Yusuf at the end of all of this, he says this as a lesson. He says, the one who has taqwa and the one who's patient, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never waste the deeds of those who do good. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never let those go aside. He will always reward for that. That is the main point to learn from this story, that regardless of what situation, if you show some uprightness, Allah will turn things around for you. Allah will put people to sleep for 300 years and wake them up and let everything have, have, to have changed to protect them and save them. He'll show that miracle as he did with the Ashab al-Kahf. These were youth. These were youth who stood up for their Lord and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala literally went to extraordinary lengths. For Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it's easy. He just kept them asleep for 300 and more years. So that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will do for us. But it's about developing that yaqeen, realizing that Allah can do that for us. That's a very individual thing. What I'm saying is a very universal point. But each one of us can only take it if we take it and individualize it. That's the challenge. The point is there. Stories are there. Examples are there. They're all there. Ibrahim is another story. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says for Ibrahim he's thrown into the he's thrown into the fire, what seems like the fire. It is totally harmless for Ibrahim Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tested Ibrahim And he fulfilled those tests, completed those tests with flying colors, 100%. He got out of them. Again, that's not what's important. It's not about the extraordinary feats of somebody the point of it the point is what allah says at the end allah says at the end afterwards inni ja'iluka linnasi imama i am going to make you an imam for the people ibrahim alayhis sacrifice was so beloved to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he did so well and you know the sacrifice i don't have to repeat them but allah says that i'm now going to make you the imam of the people and you know one of the most amazing things after ibrahim alayhis is that every prophet and every major book that came afterwards came down in his progeny. So he's the father of all of the prophets and all the messengers after him. So it's amazing, isn't it? Where you had prophets in every tribe and then suddenly it just comes down to Ibrahim salam. From him comes Ishaq and Ismail salam. Ismail salam. His next is Muhammad salam, but that's after a number of generations that's suspended, that's waiting, you know, on the side. Ishaq salam, all of this is done, Ya'qub salam, Yusuf salam, Yusha' bin Noon, and Musa salam, and Dawood salam, and Isa salam, and Yahya salam, and Zakaria salam, and Dhul Kifl, and so on, and so all the Bani Israel, and the Torah, the Zabur, the Injil, and the Quran, all from, and today that's why Ibrahim salam is revered. Because he fulfilled the test. Allah will give it to you. Would Ibrahim salam ever have thought about this? With all the difficulty that he's going. So the point is to build our Iman. This sounds like a very tabligi bayan. But seriously, that's, it's all about iman. It's all about yaqeen. That's, that's what really matters. That is really what matters. Subhanallah. And finally, we give up our deen today on petty excuses. We give up our deen on petty excuses. That's what the problem is today. Right? We just give up on smallest excuses. We give up. These people never gave it up. That's why out of nowhere, they got high positions. Number three, and you have huge amounts of data on this. Stories of the Sahaba. If you want to build your Iman, get the Hayat al-Sahaba and look at the stories of the Sahaba. They are amazing. The way they're helped by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Iman that they had. 
you know, drinking poison and nothing happening to you. Single-handed man going into, Sahabi, going into the Persian courts and so boldly with no fear whatsoever and not in the slightest wavering, going and sitting next to the leader and everybody's like, what are you doing there? He says, it's just another creature like I am. You know, and that's exactly what Allah has sent our Prophet for. To take people away from the slavery of humans to the slavery of the creator of the human being. That's exactly, they were so convicted, the, the conviction in their heart is so much. And this can be done today, it's not difficult. The, the, these things are not difficult. There's huge amounts of that. There's a story of another Sahabi who's actually from Afghanistan. Whose name was Ruman al-Balkhi. There was a Sahabi from Afghanistan, from Balkh. His name was Safina radiallahu anhu. He meets a lion in the, in the jungle and he tells him, I'm a companion of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi And the lion turned around and showed them the way out. Right, so you've got stories like that. These are individuals. It didn't happen every day. But you've got stories of that nature. You've got Umar radiallahu stories. Standing on the, uh, standing, giving khutbah. And suddenly speaking to somebody miles away in, uh, in a war. In another, Ya Safina al-Jabal. Ya Sariya al-Jabal. Ya Sariya al-Jabal. And they hear him there. I mean, what kind of communication was that? Another famous story is in Egypt. Amr ibn al-As conquered Egypt. You had the Nile there. There was a weird superstition there. The water would recede at a particular time in the year. And the people's superstition had it that you had to take a virgin woman and you had to sacrifice her, throw her into the, into the, into the uh, river Nile. Then the river Nile would start, that would be the food, the river Nile would then start to, 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 uh, to flow again. This was a major test for Amr ibn al-As and the faith. He wrote to Umar the Khalifa in Medina Munawwara. He said, what should I do? Umar wrote a letter to the Nile. He wrote a letter to the Nile saying that if you run by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then I give you the command to run. And it started running, it started bubbling up and it ran and, and it, it, there was more water in it than ever before. That's the kind of yaqeen. And it's not difficult. I mean, we think that this is just related to the Sahaba. There's numerous other, there's numerous others. Nowadays, people complain that nobody wants to listen. The Nile is listening to Umar Today, people complain, my wife doesn't listen to me. My husband doesn't listen. My children don't listen to me. My daughter doesn't listen. My son doesn't. My, 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 my students don't listen to me. This is, this is a big problem today. Nobody wants to listen to me. Fudail ibn Ayyad, he says that never once did I have a shortcoming in my obedience to Allah that I notice immediately a shortcoming in obedience to me of those who are under me. I saw a direct impact. And I guarantee you that that, that is the case in this world. You do something wrong, you will find the effect of it. Right? You will find the effect of it. Anyway, finally move on. Number four. To look at the hadith on Iman. Allahu Akbar. Looking at the hadith of Iman, there are so many. And today we're out of time. That would be a whole other lecture just to discuss Iman. Things like Iman is, I'm just going to just mention them. I won't explain them. Just to mention things like Iman is more than 70 branches. And Haya is one of the branches of faith. Iman is used in all of these. The Prophet ﷺ said, that person has tasted Iman who is happy with Allah as his Lord, Islam as his Deen and Muhammad ﷺ as his Messenger. If you really believe that and you're really satisfied and happy with that, you really savor that thought, I'm a Muslim. Not, I can't eat in McDonald's. You know? Or I can't have her or him, you know, whatever it is. I can't do this. I can't go out. I can't, you know. 
it's the this confident thought alhamdulillah i'm a muslim you'll get the you, you'll 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 feel the the taste of faith and you know there's a whole discussion anyway there's so many ahadith on that nature i just want to mention one final story uh, to end this with uh, harun al-rashid everybody's heard this story it's a king story today right i generally don't mention king stories right they seem a bit outdated but this was a real life you know uh, the uh, Amir, you know, the Amir al-Mu'mineen, the Abbasid Khalif, Harun al-Rashid. Harun al-Rashid and his wife, they're walking on the bank of either Tigris or Euphrates. And as they're walking through, one is, in, uh, Harun al-Rashid is first, his wife, Zul, uh, uh, what's her name? Zubaydah, Zubaydah, she's behind. They come across Bahlul. Bahlul was this wise person in his court. And he's sitting on the side, relaxed, making... I would say sand houses, right? Today, sand houses. So Harun Rashid goes up to him and says, what are you doing? Oh, he said, I'm making these houses and I want to sell these houses. And what's, what's, the, what's the value? He says, these are houses of Jannah that I'm selling. And they're worth a dinar each. I mean, a dinar, it was a good amount of money, but nothing for the king. Harun Rashid thought he is dreaming. Literally said he thought he was on another cloud and he walked by. His wife comes along. This is where women and their emotion really helps. This is where women go to Jannah faster than men maybe. Right? Where they get higher levels because they just have that emotion. Men are too calculating. Right? They just calculate too much on these things. So she comes along. She says, what are you doing? Same answer. She says, okay, I'll buy one from you. So he bought one. Harun Rashid went by thinking nothing of it. He goes home and at night he goes to sleep and he starts having a tour of Jannah. And as he's having a tour of Jannah, he starts seeing these beautiful homes in Jannah. And suddenly on one of them, he sees this is for Zubaydah. So he thought, oh, this is my wife's house. Let me go and check it out. He tried to go in and the person said, where are you going? He says, this is my wife's house. No, let me see what your ident- you know, what's your identification. He said, I'm the husband. He says, no, this world, she has to be around with you. You can only go her if she allows you to go. So as that happened, he's feeling really lost. He's feeling really bad and he wakes up. And now he's thinking, he's scratching his head. He says, Bahlul had a point. She probably bought one and I didn't buy one. So next morning, he goes again looking for Bahlul. And she goes along as well. And as he's going, again, he sees Bahlul there sitting, making these sand houses. He comes along and he is so relieved to see him. Like, you know when you've missed a deal? When there was a deal and you didn't take it thinking it's not worth it. Then you go home and you do research. Wow, that was a deal. I should have gone for that. And you just can't wait to wake up the next morning and go and buy that. Next morning you're going there looking. Where's that guy, man? Where's that guy? So, he says, Bahlul, what, what are you doing? He says, I'm, again, I'm making houses in Jannah and I'm selling them. And he just can't wait. Like, here, give me. You know, like, he just can't wait. But he, he has to have interaction. So he says, okay, how much? He says, um, the kingdom of the entire world. He says, but yesterday there was, yesterday there were only one dinar. Today it's the, you know, you're asking for the, the kingdom of the whole world. He said, yes, you know, yesterday. It was all based on the unseen. So one dinar was fine, but today it's based on the seen, the observed. So it's become more expensive. Right? So... Iman, this was a, it was a time of acceptance. Bahlul, at the end of the day, this is all about a time of acceptance. Another final one story. There's uh, Suleiman ibn Abdul Malik, another Khalif. 
He's Umayyad, he's earlier, he's before Harun al-Rashid. He had private palace, he had his palace. In the private palace, he had a private mu'adhin, person who gives adhan. And this adhan, this mu'adhin, he is a young kind of man, nice voice, he gives adhan. And Sulaiman ibn Abdul Malik also had a slave girl, a very beautiful slave girl. I mean, even if she's not very beautiful, there was a man, there was a woman, you know, you know what happens. So the slave girl, the, um, once Sulaiman ibn Abdul Malik noticed this Mu'addin looking at her, so he got very jealous. And in those days, they used to had everything, there were no human right laws, let's finish him off. But he needed an excuse. He couldn't say, I saw you looking. He said, I didn't, I didn't look at her. So he needed an excuse. He told the slave girl, he says, look, I want you to dress up, make yourself attractive, put some nice perfume, etc. And then I want you to go and present yourself to him and offer yourself to him. So she goes along and she goes there. And now this is a, think of this very carefully. When, he, when she goes there, the man, this young man, he says to her, he doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He says, come back tomorrow. Right? He says, come back tomorrow. Now, this is what you call putting a buffer in place. It's very difficult to say no when something like that happens. So, he played it cool. He needed to work on his mind. He needed to see whether he really wanted to commit that sin or not. Most people wouldn't have been able to do that. Right? So, he said, come back tomorrow. So, she goes back. And the king is a very... Uh, he, he's a... Uh, he doesn't have time for this. He doesn't have time to waste. He says, no, go back and say, this is the only time that we have. We have no other time. And if you want to do it, this is the time that, that you've got. So she goes back. And now he says to her, I want you to go back and return. And I want you never to come back. Because I fear that we're going to have to stand in front of the one who would not like to see us like this. She started crying. This put, put, drove the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in her heart. She went back crying to Sulaiman ibn Abdul Malik. Now Sulaiman ibn Abdul Malik was very happy at the outcome. So he calls one of his ministers, gives him a huge bag of dirhams and says, go and take this slave girl and take these dirhams and go to this mu'adhin and gift both of these to him saying, this is the money, spend this on her, she's yours as a wife. You can marry her if you want to. Wonderful. Goes up and they approach this young man and the Mu'addin, he says, unfortunately, I cannot marry her now. I can't. Please take her away. Why? Because the first time that I saw her and I let her go, I then made a contract with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that, oh Allah, give me a suitable reward in paradise for my sacrifice of this. Now he could have justified it by saying, it's come halal, it's fine. But he had made a deal with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And his deal was that if I leave her, leave her right now, you give me something greater in paradise. His yaqeen in paradise for that reward is so much greater that now nothing's going to make him move. Saying, if I take her now, I've broken that contract and that is more, more valuable to me. That's the kind of yaqeen we want to develop. And now you're wondering how to develop this? Well, stories of the Sahaba, stories of the Prophets in the Quran, just thinking about things, time to think about what's going to happen in our life, where we're going. And finally, what was the fourth point? 
reading the ahadith. We should have to be a totally different lecture on the hadith on iman, the benefits of iman, or other characteristics of iman, and if somebody is bereft of iman, I'll just mention one thing the Prophet said, a person does not commit zina while he's still a believer. A person does not steal while he's still a believer. Those kind of narrations tell us what iman requires. And once inshallah that happens with a lot of dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's how our iman will develop. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the tawfiq wa akhir da'wana and alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. اللهم أنت السلام ومنك السلام تبارك يا ذا الجلال والإكرام اللهم يا حي يا قيوم برحمتك نستغيث اللهم صل وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى أهل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم Oh Allah accept our duas Oh Allah accept our gathering here for so many hours Oh Allah on this day when we could have been doing so many other things You gave us the tawfiq to be sitting here So first and foremost Oh Allah we are First and foremost we are extremely grateful to you For allowing us to be in this protected sanctuary with all of this mercy that's descending. Oh Allah, these are the houses of your mercy. Oh Allah, allow us to imbibe this mercy, to take this mercy, to benefit from this mercy. Oh Allah, for this mercy to purify our hearts. Oh Allah, we ask that you give us, you give us, uh, you give us obedience to you. Oh Allah, you make obedience beloved to our hearts and disobedience hated in our heart. Oh Allah, we, we ask you to give us the best of all that your pious people ask you for. O oh Allah, that your messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam asked from you. And to seek, we seek forgiveness from all those sins that we've committed at any time, at any moment. O oh Allah, we ask that you, you change our life from that of sin. O oh Allah, O oh Allah, you told Musa alayhi salam and Harun alayhi salam to speak to Pharaoh who used to call himself the Lord. Ana rabbukum al-a'la, he used to say. You still told Musa and Harun alayhi salam to speak to him softly and gently. O oh Allah, we are your servants who say, Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la. O oh Allah, we ask that you treat us with gentleness. O oh Allah, we ask that you also treat us with gentleness, with compassion. O oh Allah, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on the Ummah. Wherever they are, have mercy on the Ummah. O oh Allah, have mercy on our Muslim brothers and sisters around the world. O oh Allah, O oh Allah, we ask that you keep us you keep us in afiyah and well-being and you keep our iman strengthened and secure oh allah we ask that you grant us the karima la ilaha illallah on our deathbed and we ask that you send your abundant blessings on our messenger muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and you make the best of our lives the ending of our lives and the best moment in our existence the moment that we stand in front of you subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifuna wa salamun alal mursaleen walhamdulillah